0: Well, today we're finishing up the series titled, Made to Persuade. And this is a series about how how when we choose to follow Jesus, God saves us, He transforms us. And as a part of that transformation, God makes us into something that we weren't previously. He makes us into persuaders of people, people who persuade others to follow Jesus. In some uh, scriptures, that's known as an evangelist. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy wasn't an evangelist, he was a pastor. But Paul said, doesn't matter, you do the work of an evangelist. We're all taught to do that work. We're taught to be persuaders. The Bible says in Proverbs, that he who wins souls is wise. So there's a godly wisdom that goes along with that. Jesus called it being fishers of men to his disciples. Because that's the context they understood. They were fishermen. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So he was telling them, as a, as a part of this call to follow me, I'm going to make you into something you're not. I'm going to make you into fishers of men. And so we've been looking at Second Corinthians chapter 5, that passage that begins in verse 11, where Paul writes this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. We try to persuade others. And I've been explaining over the last few weeks that the word try refers to the effort, the amount of effort that is necessary to persuade others. Uh, Persuading others is hard work. Persuading people to follow Jesus uh, is hard work. In fact, I saw this week online a friend of mine posted something on, on Facebook. He asked a question And and the question was this, I want you to look at this. The question was, what are some difficulties you face when trying to talk to someone about your faith? He just posted that uh, on on Facebook. He's he's a pastor here in in another city here in Texas. And and I I thought all the responses were really good. So here, here are some of the responses. The first person said this, Just trying to convey what is going on in my head and heart. Finding the right wording, if that makes sense. I thought that's that's very accurate. How many times do we want to say something we don't really know what to say? We, We know what we feel, we know what we believe, but how do we put it into words? I thought it was very good. Here's another response. Overcoming people's religion, especially if they claim to be Christian. Most religious people are immune to gospel warnings. Most religious people are immune to gospel warnings. How many times do you Tell somebody, you want to talk to them about Jesus, and they say, oh, I already go to church. Oh, I've been confirmed. Oh, I go to mass. You know." And so it's like, oh, they put up this wall, and, and you can't reach them because they're religious. So I thought that was a great answer. Here's the next one. I think often it is hard to put yourself in the other person's shoes and see life from their perspective. Why does this person have the worldview they have? And what would I believe had I had the same experiences this person had? And then empathizing with that person and trying to see how my experiences could help them in their situation. Wow, I thought that's, I mean, that is dead on. We don't identify with them because we maybe grew up differently and because we're accustomed to a certain lifestyle that's so different from theirs and we just don't understand their worldview. I love that second question this person asked. What would I believe had I had the same experiences this person had? What if I had grown up like this person? in a life like this person and had faced the challenges he or she had faced, then our beliefs would be differently. So you know, these are challenges that we face. Let's go to the next one. For me, it's not always knowing how to relate to them. Having, Having been raised in church, sometimes it's difficult to bridge the gap with people. Same thing the previous person said, just said it a little bit differently. There is a gap there, and how do we bridge that gap? Here's the next one. I often struggle getting the conversation started. Once it's started, I'm open to anything. That's <laughs> the truth. How do, you, how do you broach the subject about Jesus or about church? If you don't invite somebody to church, you know, what do you do? How do you bring it up? Uh, now There are some things we, we can do, um, some opportunities that we can take. If somebody asks you, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was pretty good. What did you do? Mm, no, nothing. Just went shopping. I'm like, tell him you went to church. <laughs> What you do? I went to church yesterday, just throw it out there, and that 's kind of a way to 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 start the conversation to kind of to kind of veer it toward uh, what we want to talk about and then the next one, the blank look on people 's faces <laughs> when you when you bring up church when you bring up jesus it 's like all of a sudden they're you know don 't know what to say, but uh, it takes great effort it takes great effort to persuade people that 's why Paul said, uh, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade. He's talking about the, the effort. He's not talking about an attempt, like just give it a try. He's saying we work hard at it. In fact, the New Living Translation says it that, that way. We work hard at persuading others. And the reason it takes such a great effort is because we're fighting against spiritual forces of darkness that, that uh, tr- are trying to keep people in darkness. And it can seem nearly impossible at times to convince people to follow Jesus. I mean, it's nearly impossible to convince them to to come to church sometimes. So much so that we often want to give up. But Paul would say to us, don't give up. Work hard at this. Fight through the distractions and the spiritual attacks because lives are at stake for eternity. Keep trying to persuade others to follow Jesus. And so we've been working through this passage in 2 Corinthians. Two weeks ago, I, I spoke about how we persuade others with a surrendered life. Paul said, what we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to you, to your consciences. And so he, he was saying, look, I am who I am. My life is, is an open book. And when our lives are surrendered to God, then that gives us a foundation to share the gospel, to persuade people to come to Jesus. Last week, I spoke to you about how we persuade not just with a surrendered life, but we persuade with a, a clear message. We have to be able to articulate the message. Uh, in verse 19, uh, last week we read, we read this, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against Him. That's the message right there. He's given us a message. Right? The message is, God was in Christ, He reconciled the world to Himself, and He no longer counts our sins against us when we're in Christ. And then Paul says, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So he's given us a message, and we have to declare it. And so we persuade with a surrendered life, and we persuade with a clear message, both are necessary. Our lives and our message are intimately bound together. We can't separate them, even if we would like to. I mean, if we want to be true to our calling, then our lives and our message have to be uh, intimately bound. When we try to separate them and say, well... I believe this, but I live this way, then the world rejects our message. They call us hypocrites, and rightly so. And so we need both. But today we're going to look at the last few verses of this passage we've been going through in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 20 reads like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, he goes back to what the message is. The message is this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But he begins verse 20 by saying, we are Christ's ambassadors. An ambassador is a, a person that is sent out from one country to another country, and he represents his home country's values. He represents His home country's beliefs. In our country, we have ambassadors to other countries. And those ambassadors represent us and they represent our president. They they speak for our president. When when the ambassadors that we have from our country to other countries, when they speak, it's as if the president were speaking. They represent him. They speak his, his words. Now, since God is making his appeal through us, that's what Paul says. God is making his appeal through us. How should that appeal then be made that's that's a question that we're we're trying to to answer uh, How would God make this appeal how would How would he make this appeal would he would he make it in a very nonchalant uh fashion How would he do this i don't think he would do that I think that uh Because we are ambassadors and we are speaking for God, and because we need to speak the way God would speak, we need to speak with the same urgency with which God would speak. Um, As ambassadors, we represent God, as I said, with our lives and with our message. But the way we speak is also important. The way we speak. And so this is... So this is a, the, the big idea of what we're talking about today. And this is really my only point. This is a one-point sermon. Okay, One-point sermon. And here's, here's my only point. Since we represent Christ, we must speak for Him with the same passion that He has for the lost. We must persuade others with urgent pleading. Because we're representing Him. We're speaking for Him. And that's a passion He has for the lost. Since we represent Christ, we must speak for Him with the same passion He has for the lost. And we must persuade others with urgent pleading. Paul's words were these. He said, We implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be reconciled to God. Now what does the word implore mean? The word implore means to plead. This is why I'm saying now. We need to persuade. We persuade with a surrendered life, with a clear message, and with urgent pleading. The word implore means to plead. It means to beg. To beg. We implore you. We beg you. I'm asking you. Come to God. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. This is a matter of life and death. God is not calling people back to Him casually. God is not saying, Yeah, if you, if you think about it, if you want to give your life to me, fine. If not, that's fine. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. That's why Jesus came to earth. And that's why He was tortured. That's why He was scourged. That's why He was crucified, the cruelest of all deaths. Because He wants people to be saved. And so, God is not calling people back to Him casually. He's not calling people back to Him indifferently. God is passionate about the lost being found, about the unsaved being saved. Jesus was passionate about reaching those that are far away from God. In fact, He lived His entire life with that single purpose, that single purpose of reconciling people to God, of bringing people to God. And he lived with a sense of urgency because that was that was his purpose. The son of man, he said, came to seek and to save that which was lost. There's a sense of urgency there. In fact, Jesus spoke about this in Luke 15. He told three parables that speak volumes about how urgent this appeal that we're making, how urgent it must be made. He told three parables. It's the only time that we read in the scriptures that, that he uh, that he said three parables in a row, with all, the, all of them having the same message. He told, first of all, the parable of the lost sheep, in which the shepherd left the 99 sheep behind to go search for the one lost sheep. He had 100 sheep, one of them Straight away, he wandered off. He left the 99 behind because they were safe, they were sound. And he went off to look for that one lost sheep. That one lost sheep was as important, we might even say more important because he was lost at the time, than the 99 that were safe and sound. And so the shepherd searched with a sense of urgency, knowing that his time was limited. He couldn't, he couldn't leave that sheep out forever forever. He had to get there before an animal got to him, before he went off a cliff. And so he knew that the time was urgent and there was, the time was limited and there was an urgency there. And so he went out to search for this lost sheep. That's the same passion, that's the same urgency for the lost that we must carry with us at all times. That's why we, like Paul, must tell our friends and neighbors. I implore you, come to God, give your life to Him. Don't give up on them, on your friends, on your family members, on your neighbors. We've got to have the same passion and urgency that the shepherd had for the lost sheep. And then Jesus, immediately after that, told the story of a lost coin. A woman who lost one of her ten silver coins, the Bible says. And, I mean, it's a silver coin, and and it really represented her you know, her retirement, as it were, how she was going to live in the future. And so she searched, the Bible says, and Jesus said that she searched diligently and passionately for that coin. She turned on the lamp, she swept, she turned things upside down, inside out until she found that coin. Have you ever done that kind of cleaning before where you're looking for something and you're just throwing everything and moving everything and, oh, here it is, I found it. It's just something important, an important paper. When I was in college, I sent my college roommate, who was a good friend of mine, to jail. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but I turned him in inadvertently. At least that's what he said. He kept telling me, you sent me to jail. What happened is that I, I was in my dorm room. It was a Friday night, and a security guard came to my room and uh, knocks on the door and he's looking for david garcia those my friend's name david garcia i said and i told him exactly where he was i mean i didn't know they were going to arrest him i didn't know there was a police officer waiting outside the building and so i told him yeah he's he's in the music building which our dome was right next to the music building and i told him he's in the music building he's in the practice rooms go down this hall over here he's teaching the lesson he had a, a high school student my roommate was a clarinet major clarinet player that's what we did on fridays we practiced and so, or, or taught lessons, and so he was teaching a clarinet lesson, and uh, I gave him such good directions, he found him right away. And a few minutes later, David comes tearing into the into our room. He swings the door open. He's throwing things up, and look, he was looking for a piece of paper, a receipt that proved he had paid a tra- uh, traffic ticket. And so he's looking for it all over. His room was a mess as it was. His side of the room was messy, very messy. I mean, it was so bad. He had a a pile of clean clothes and a pile of dirty clothes it was so bad that we had we had a phone line there and uh, he got a phone call one time or you know maybe it was me but the phone rang he couldn't find the phone till so he's following the cord and it was under a stack of clothes somewhere he had plates of food he had eaten and just left there and it, it was you know we were total opposites when it came to that so he's looking through all his stuff all his junk everything he never found it and so he went you know and, and the whole time the security officer the security guard is waiting at the door just waiting for him couldn't find it, so okay, let's go. So he was arrested, and, they, and then then he says, stay by the phone, I'm going to call you. So he calls me, and um, th- I remember well, because Bill Dean used to like to watch Dallas. Remember the show Dallas? And this, I think this is the episode where that one of the daughters got married. Something big was going on. I don't know what it was. And so so we were watching that, and we missed it because we had to go bail out our friend. And so... He says, "I need this amount of money." I didn't have any money. We were poor, struggling students, so I had to go ask people in the and that wing, people that I knew, if I could borrow some money. So I'm going up and down with people, and you, can I borrow some money? There's one girl, I didn't know her too well, but I knew who she was, and she knew David. And uh, I remember her name was Monica, and I went, and I know that she was well off; she had a lot of money. But I, that's not where I went to. Her. I just was looking for anybody. So I told her, "Hey, I needed ten more dollars." Can I borrow $10? We'll pay you back, I promise. And she says, um, sure. She said, what's wrong? I said, well, I better not tell you right now. And she said, uh, is it David? I said, well, yeah. Is he in jail? How did you know? I mean, <laughs> so she nailed it, but uh, went and got him out of jail. But, you know, I think about this woman looking for that coin. It was urgent. It was important. And she cleaned house and she found the coin. So it was the lost sheep, the lost coin. And then Jesus told the story about the lost son, the younger of two sons, who hurt his father deeply when he demanded his share of the inheritance and then proceeded to move away far away from home. And he wasted all his money, the Bible says, in wild Living, in the wild living, wine, women, and song, he blew this money completely. It was in his inheritance. And this hurt the father. But the whole time, the father waited with, I'm sure, much emotion and, and passion. I mean, what father wouldn't feel emotion and passion if he knew that his son is out messing up his life? And so he waited by the door. He looked out the front door of, this, of his house every day, no doubt, because a time came when the, the son came home and the father saw him because he was looking for him. And the father ran to him. The son came home thinking, I'm out of money, I'm out of friends. As soon as my money ran out, my friends left me. I have nowhere to turn. I'm going to go back and tell my father, Father, forgive me. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. He had a speech all prepared, but the father saw him and he ran, which in those days would have been scandalous for a man of of, of his place to to run, to, to be seen in public running out toward the sun. And yet he went and he embraced him and he wouldn't even let the sun. Make his speech about, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you I'm no longer to be called your son. Just make me as one of your slaves or one of your servants. The father didn't even let him finish that speech because he, he forgave him. He, he loved him. He restored him to the place uh, that he had as one of his sons. But think about the father and the emotion. Think of the, the passion, the, the urgency that would have allowed him to run out to the son and to embrace him and to forgive him. And Jesus didn't say this specifically, but I think it's implied that the whole time that the father was waiting, the father was praying for his son. How could he not? Praying for his son who's out in the world, who's lost, who's wasting his life. But in each story, the thing or the person that was lost was sought after with great urgency and great passion. That's how... Jesus feels about the lost. And as his ambassadors, we're his ambassadors. As his ambassadors, we must learn to persuade people with urgent pleading. We implore you, Paul said, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God I beg you. I plead with you. Come to church with me. Come and, and God will help you. God will touch you. God will save you. God will change your life. God will help you beat that habit. Jesus told another story that also speaks to us about the same thing. And I'd like for you to read this with me in Luke 14. I'm going to read this story. Luke 14, beginning with verse 16. Jesus replied, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for now everything or for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Doesn't that sound familiar? When you invite somebody to church, they begin to make excuses. Here's what happened. They all began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field. And I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now that was an excuse. Who buys a field without first seeing it? But he said, I bought it. Now I'm going to go see it. Then verse 14. Uh, verse, uh, I'm sorry. Verse 19. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Yeah, that's another excuse. Still another said, I just got married. So I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, bring in the needy, the people who who are needy. And so, verse 22 says, Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Go out to the roads and to the country lanes and compel them to come in. Compel them. Compel means to force them. Compel means to urge them. Compel means to Make them. And notice the urgency here. The urgency is go out. He's saying go quickly. Our time is limited. Go quickly. He says cover as as much ground as possible. Cover as much ground. Go to as many people as you can. Go to the highways. Go to the byways. The King James Version says, Go to the highways, go to the byways, go to the hedges. One translation says, Go and look be, behind the hedges, look in every corner. Find people and bring them so my house will be full. But he says, Compel them, urge them strongly, force them. Have you ever heard somebody say, You know, I didn't really want to speak up, I didn't want to say anything, but I feel compelled to say this? That means I feel forced. I feel, you know, I've got to do this. I've, I've got to make this happen. So he's saying, compel them. There are, those are words of urgency. Go quickly, cover as much ground as possible, and compel them to come in. That's what it takes to persuade others to follow Jesus. See, sometimes we give up too easily. Because we know that people are, are going to have excuses for not coming to Jesus, and they're going to have excuses for not coming to church. The excuses for not coming to church are many, right? I worked late, late last night. I didn't get home till 12. You know, that's life, right? People work. I only got five hours of sleep. You'd get up and go to work with five, uh, five hours of sleep. Oh, but my kids, you know, they didn't want to come. Really? You're going to let your kids stay home every time they, want, they don't want to go to school too? Or, you know, we had some other activity with the kids. Are you sure you want to go down that road and, and start teaching your kids that something else is more important than, than church? Or, you know what Church is something that God institutes. This is not our idea. This is not our plan. This is God's plan. And so the excuses are many. And when you start inviting people, I'm just talking about people who already come to church. When you start inviting people who don't come to church regularly, they may have excuses. But here's my point. Don't give up. Don't give up. They say, you know, I I just, I I don't have a way to get there. I'll come pick you up. Paul says we work hard to persuade people. If if they if they say to you, but I know I'm just, I hate to be around people. Say, hey, you can sit with me, sit right, and I'll be with you the whole time. You'll never be. I'll wait for you out there in the front, and we walk in together. See, we we give up too easily. Jesus said, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, so my house will be fooled. That's what it takes to persuade others, what it takes to persuade others to follow Jesus. Today is Palm Sunday. And as we've been saying today, this is the day in which we recall Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The day in which He approached Jerusalem riding on a humble donkey the people lined the streets. The people put their cloaks on the road. They spread palm branches on the road. As he walked. And they shouted. They shouted Hosanna. To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Words of praise. It was a, a celebration. It was a great day. It was a great event. But there's something else. That happened on that day. That we don't normally think about on Palm Sunday. But this happened also on that day. And that is. That on that day, as Jesus approached the city, the Bible says that he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the city. And here's what he said. And I'm reading from Luke 19:41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. Now we're talking about urgency and passion. How many of you know that when you weep for something, that's a sense of passion, right? right so if you want to look this up with me, it's Luke 19:41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? If he only knew, if he only knew, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. That happened Palm Sunday. He's weeping over them and saying, if you only knew, if you only knew, but now because you've rejected me, now the day is going to come when your enemies are going to defeat you, and your children are going to be killed. They're going to crush you and your children. To the ground. Because you didn't respond to my invitation. In Matthew we read that. He said Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's weeping over the city. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How I wanted to gather you under my wings. like I wanted to gather you like a hand gathers its chicks under its wings to protect. How I wanted to gather you but you rejected me. Do you see the, the passion in his voice? That's the kind of passion we need to have when we see people that are lost and without Christ. That's what it takes to persuade others to follow Jesus. And we can do that this week. Here's the here's neat thing. We can do that this week as we lead up to Easter. We can, we can begin to represent Christ. We're Christ's ambassadors. We can represent Christ with the same passion that He has for your friends, for your family members that are away from God. One of the greatest joys... As parents, those of you that are parents, one of the greatest joys that we have is to see our children grow up. I love looking at pictures of our kids when they were little and reminiscing how they used to be cute and innocent. But then they grow up, kids grow up, and they face all kinds of temptations, and sometimes they make wrong choices. For those of you with young children, They don't stay young and innocent forever. Be nice if they did, but they grow up and they start facing this world and the problems and temptations. And suddenly we find ourselves deep in in the mire with them because we love them and and they're facing things and they're doing things that are breaking our hearts. But my question is, is the reason I mention this, is I want to ask you this question. How would you respond if your son or daughter whom you taught to love God and you brought them to church, how would you respond if they came to you and they said, I no longer believe. I've lost my faith. And you're thinking, how is this possible? You You were just in church five years ago and everything was great and you're loving God and you're a good kid and everybody says, oh, what a good son you have. What a great daughter you have. And now you're saying to me, I'm really struggling with my faith, or I've lost my faith. I I don't believe anymore. I just don't believe in God, or I don't believe the Bible. It's just a book that was written by man. What if they were to reject everything you've taught them and decided to live away from God? What if they became addicted to drugs? What if they decided they were gender fluid? What then? Is that possible for people in the church? You better believe it's possible. Is that possible for kids who've grown up in church? You better believe it's possible. I've seen it and I'm seeing it even today. What if one of your children told you, Mom, Dad, I need to tell you something? I'm coming out of the closet. I can't hide it anymore. I've got to be true to myself. What if they turned their backs on everything that they've ever learned from you and from this church? How would you respond? Now, you might think, Pastor, I, you know, I choose not to think in such, such negative terms. My kids are all good. They have their issues, but they're basically good, good kids, and I don't, want to, you know, I don't want to confess the negative. Well, that's fine, but the Bible says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And if you think your kids are standing firm, be careful that they don't fall. But my point isn't really to issue this warning from the Bible. It's a necessary warning. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't stand. My point is that if this happened, how would you respond? I think you would address the problem with the greatest sense of urgency and importance ever. This is your child. You're not about to let him or her be taken by Satan. You're not about to allow that to happen. You would get on your knees and you would pray. You would fast and, and you would plead with them. Don't do this. Come back to God. See, that's what it means to persuade others with that urgency. We don't have to plead with God. Oh, God, love my child. God already loves them. He loves them. We have to plead with those that aren't following Christ. And if you can imagine, the reason I painted this scenario is not not to give some negative thought, even though I think these are realistic temptations and realistic uh, problems that Christians face. But the issue is for us to know the urgency that we would respond with our children if they were lost. We would tell them, don't throw your life away. Don't run the risk of being separated for eternity from God. And I'm saying, take that same feeling, that same urgency... And when you invite your friends this week, and when you talk to them about Jesus, when you invite your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, whomever, your co-workers, don't give up so easily when they say, No, I don't care. No, really, come. Come. That's the urgency with which we need to persuade others. Urgently pleading with them. Now listen, let's not lose sight of the the joy that comes from people responding to our invitation to follow Jesus. Let's not lose sight of the fact of the joy that comes when your children come back to God. Or the joy that comes when you persuade, you you, uh, invite someone to follow Jesus and they respond and they give their life to Jesus. There's great joy. The Bible says there's great joy in heaven. There was a celebration when the lost sheep was found, Jesus said. There was a celebration when the woman found that lost coin. The Bible says she invited her friends. And they had a great celebration because she said, I had lost this coin, but now it's found. The shepherd said, I had lost his sheep, now it's found. And the, the father of the lost son, wow, he threw a great party. Put a ring on my son's finger. Put sandals on his feet. We're going to celebrate the fact that my son was lost And now he's found. So there's great joy when people come to Jesus. Let's not forget that fact. And I want you to imagine a church full of people that we've invited. And they've given their life to Christ. And there's joy in heaven. The angels celebrate. And there's joy here on earth as well. So as we lead up to Easter this week. We have a great opportunity to be ambassadors for Jesus. And to tell the people that we know that are not followers of Christ. I implore you. Come to Jesus. And you can just simply start with saying, hey, come to Easter service with me. Come come to church with me on Easter. I'll wait for you. We can sit together. I'll be there early. We'll, we'll get a donut. We'll get some coffee. We'll... We'll have a great time. I'll take you out to eat after the service if you can do that. I mean, just do what it takes to persuade people to follow Jesus.